So we finished last week with the inescapable problem that you just can't dispense with God and expect that things in the culture that are dependent on God and on God's character will just carry on magically. Things like truth and beauty and goodness and justice and meaning and any sense of shared humanity. And I said last week also that there's a connection then between this and a growing need in our culture to insist on affirmation rather than tolerance uh, as the primary kind of value of cultural unity. And so I quoted John Stackhouse, so I'm just gonna go back to that really briefly. Next slide, affirmation is a paternalistic way of enforcing a kind of false unity on a culture where it is not actually present. Like in a world without God, it is a way of trying to hold us all together all celebrating the same values, but in reality, it is the selective application of the virtues of justice, equality, inclusion, diversity, and freedom to certain kinds of people and not to others. In truth, affirmation is a hegemony much narrower and much worse than the former culture of tolerance. Now, um, after last week's message, I received an email from someone in our congregation asking a question about this, uh, which I'll paraphrase as follows, you know, our tolerance or affirmation are only options, right? What does it mean to love others when tolerance seems quite negative and perhaps doesn't go far enough and affirmation feels misplaced or problematic? Is there a third way? Something like giving dignity, would that be consistent with love? Now I think that's a brilliant question um, and I really like the suggestion of giving dignity. Um, I think there's a lot in that. And at the end of this message, I'm gonna try and wrestle with these ideas a little bit further. You know, what is the best response, if there is one, to the tension that we experience between tolerance and affirmation? Should Christians respond to these things and the many other tensions we experience as Christians living in this current cultural moment? Um, now, one of the classic biblical passages that often comes up when we're talking about cultural engagement is 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 17, which is on the screen. He writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves or as God's servants. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So as Christians, Peter's telling us that we are to expect to experience a kind of homelessness in this world. We know that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world, that we are aliens and strangers and exiles, but how does this help us navigate the moral and ethical challenges of a culture that does not share our values, right? How can I love my neighbor if my neighbor thinks that I'm weird at best or bigoted and toxic at worst? Does affirmation equal compromise? 
Or is tolerance being unloving? Right? What does it mean to show proper respect to everyone, as Peter tells us? Now, hundreds, maybe thousands of books have been written on these things, so I just want to manage your expectations here a little bit that I'm going to finally solve this, right? Turn to the person next to you and say, he's not going to solve this. But as we've been saying, I do want to figure out if, if it's possible the right way forward. And if we want to do that, the first thing we need to do is try and really understand the culture that we're actually living in and to prayerfully discern with the help of the scriptures and the leading of the Holy Spirit how we're called to respond. See, every generation of Christians has to do this work. Um, we have to think carefully about the culture we live in and think about how the gospel applies to the cultural issues that we face. Every generation of Christians has to do this. We can't rely on past experiences necessarily. We can learn from them, but we can't rely on them because the things that those Christians in previous generations were dealing with are different from the ones that we are. So we have to be discerning and careful and prayerful, and uh, that's why we're doing this series. Now, you may have noticed that there seems to have been a rapid increase in the political and social fracturing along all kinds of lines in Western culture, right? This is not just about Christians and non-Christians. It's much broader than that. Uh, there is a lot of anger. There's a lot of finger pointing. And I would say underneath all of that, there is a lot of despair. What's going on? To trace this out, we're going to look at something today, uh, the origins of what is sometimes pejoratively called woke culture, which is in fact um, a radical social justice movement that's emerged in the West over the last couple of decades, which itself has emerged from something called postmodernism. Here we go, hold on to your hats. Who's heard of postmodernism? Anybody? A few people. Um, now, social justice, I want to say at the outset, is not the enemy. And social justice movements of various kinds have been taking place for thousands of years. I mean, you could argue that in our scriptures anyway, the first great social justice movement was the liberation of Israel out of Egypt. And of course, you know, from oppression, like freedom from oppression is one of the most powerful themes in the scriptures, you know, in the prophets and in the ministry of Jesus. We know this. But some more recent iterations of social justice, which are intensely political and extremely divisive, and are not, in my view, entirely compatible with the gospel, and that's what we'll be looking at today. And I should also add that the term woke is not the enemy either. Of course, it depends on how you define it, but the term was actually originally coined by African Americans in reference to racial justice in the early mid to mid-1900s. Some even trace the term as early as 1930, at the height of racial segregation and violence in the Jim Crow era. So the cry, stay woke, meant to keep your eyes open, to be on your guard, which was often, for those folks, a matter of life and death. However, it has, as I'm sure you know, come to mean much more than that. It now means being awake to any potential abuses of power or oppression or bigotry. So wake up to systemic racism, wake up to entrenched oppression of LGBTQI people, wake up to white privilege, wake up to the patriarchy. Even in situations where these things are not actually present, to be woke means to be ready to find evidence of systemic oppression everywhere and to speak truth to power and fight back against the oppressors. So wokeness often simplistically then divides the world into the oppressed, and the oppressors with almost no nuance or very little nuance. And since the lines around those two categories 
are always changing or rapidly changing, you know, you may discover that one minute you're on the oppressed side of the equation and the next minute you're an oppressor and you need to be cancelled. Now, Helen Pluckrose, uh, his Here's Helen, uh, one of the foremost academics working on issues of work culture and social justice, writes this next slide. People see the work of radical social justice movements quite clearly, though they may refer to them as identity politics or political correctness or call-out culture or cancel culture or wokeness. It has been hard to miss the demands to decolonize everything from curricula to hairstyles, to tearing down of statues, the defacing of paintings, and that pronouns have become a matter of paramount political importance. They've also become much harder to navigate and to use correctly in both a political sense and a grammatical one. It seems that every day we hear news of a comedian being cancelled for a problematic joke or a celebrity offering a groveling apology for the unintended misuse of a word, or that someone in the public eye has been found to have said something 20 years ago which is now considered racist or sexist or homophobic. Artists of all kinds are frequently held up for criticism, either because their work has not included a diverse enough range of people, in which case there's a failure of representation, or because it has, in which case it's cultural appropriation. Anyone who addresses political or cultural issues at all is likely to attract swarms of social justice activists on social media to problematize, to call out, to distort and discredit their arguments. It is becoming increasingly daunting particularly for those with businesses or jobs they'd like to keep to speak publicly at all. And you probably, you know, you might be aware that J.K. Rowling, say for example, the author of the Harry Potter series, um, has been labelled a TERF, which means a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, because she has argued publicly that biological sex still means something real in the world, especially in regards to how we understand women's rights. And that, of course, has caused massive controversy, and she's been endlessly cancelled. Now, all this finger-pointing and all this shouting has created a lot of fear, I think, um, and is massively contributing to social anxiety and declining mental health, right? This is having a real effect on us, especially for teenagers. I think there's a lot of pressure on teens at the moment to be sure that they don't belong to an oppressor class, however that's defined, right? So you've got to be an oppressed minority in some way, or you're wrong, you're a problem. And there's a lot of shame around this. And so I think it's encouraging teens to adopt labels for themselves that are not actually true or to be pushed to extremes. It's why young boys, for example, uh, who have grown up being told that they're the problem in society because of male privilege or toxic mas masculinity, are turning to horrible human beings like Andrew Tate for guidance. Why? Because he's affirming them, right? He's telling them that they're okay. He's doing this in the worst way possible in a way that's ultimately dehumanizing, right? But it works because it's giving them a quick, cheap sense of dignity and belonging and meaning. But it will not end well for anyone, especially for women. And so we need a better way forward for all our sakes, right? We cannot atomize these issues into us versus them because I think culturally, we all rise and fall together. So, we need to understand how we got here. And I'm sorry, I really am, if this gets a bit technical, but I do think it's crucial we grasp this because I think what is happening is not benign and it is really reshaping our society in some very powerful and I think some really destructive ways. And after this message, as I said, we'll all be ready to get back to the usual preaching program. Now, 
I mentioned in the first part of this series that after World War II, there emerged in Europe a branch of philosophy kind of loosely called postmodernism. Some of you, as we said, have heard of it, you know, mostly via the work of these three guys, these French academics, and they are Jacques Derrida, uh, Michael Foucault, and uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard. There they are looking suitably um, French and philosophical. <laughs> now, next slide. Postmodernism was or is about dismantling any and all claims of political or religious or ideological truth and any and all stories that seek to wield power over the culture. Now, you can understand why they were working on this. No one wanted to return to the horrors of the First and Second World Wars, of fascism, of the Holocaust, and uh, Derrida, at least, uh, one of those guys was Jewish and grew up under the shadow of fascism and the Holocaust, or the terror of, the Soviet, uh, of Soviet-style communism, of the gulags, or the mass murders of Mao's China. Right? The 20th century was the most murderous century this world has ever known. And much of that violence and much of that suffering was inspired by those ideological narratives, what the postmodern philosophers called meta-narratives. So, for example, right, Karl Marx wrote this about the meaning of history. This is the meta-narrative of Marxism, as per the opening words of the Communist Manifesto. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. That's a big, bold truth claim. Free men and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. And the manifesto goes, goes on to say that society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Their struggle, Marx believed, will signal what he called the end of history, which was the establishment of a communist paradise on earth in which nobody will own anything and everyone will be completely free and totally happy. Sadly, as Joseph Stalin discovered, you really do have to kill a lot of people, millions in fact, to keep utopia going and ensure that everyone is sufficiently free and totally happy. It's not surprising then that Lyotard defined postmodernism as, next slide, skepticism or incredulity toward meta-narratives. And what he meant was that we now live in an era where um, it is no longer plausible to believe in these grand stories that claim to tell us what is true or what the world means, we should hold all such claims with suspicion and disbelief. Now, Lyotard included things like Christianity and Marxism and even science in his definition of meta-narratives. He argued that instead of meta-narratives, what we actually need is a plurality of truths and a plurality of knowledges. We need to give space to different ways of knowing that are specific to different groups of people especially minorities. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? Um, for, in other words, we need to enshrine a kind of relativism into our culture. We need mini-narratives instead of meta-narratives. Now, for Derrida, the focus was instead on language and how we use language, 
He argued that we only think we know things are true or real because language kind of tricks us into thinking this. But we cannot ever really know for sure, right? So what he said was that when anyone ever claims that something is true or self-evident or even real, it's just a uh, a language-based power game used to justify certain kinds of oppression. And his main example was how we constantly use binaries in language. You can see these on the screen. Uh, Right and wrong, true and false, right and left, male and female, good and bad, white and black, heterosexual, homosexual, cis and trans, and all those binaries that we use in language are just a means of control. Like we think these divisions, these binaries are real uh, or real categories, but they're not real, they're just tricks of language. So Derrida believed what we have to do is deconstruct and his system of philosophy was called deconstruction. We need to deconstruct or reverse those binaries in order to redress abuses of power and injustice. Now, of course, when you do that, and he was quite straightforward about this, you're still just playing power games, right? You're not actually aiming at any kind of truth. We're just reordering where power is located. Um, And since nothing can be called true, what does it matter? It's all just a game. Life is just a game. Um, Now, these guys were massively influential in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and I had to study them, and I'm still in therapy because of it, right? And now you all will be too. We can join each other in our collective misery. But do you see the problem yet? Do you see the problem yet? The problem is that you cannot build a culture on these ideas because everything just falls apart into meaninglessness, into absurdity, like it's a philosophy built really on nothing. For example, if we followed the advice of Lyotard and Derrida, we would need to entirely reject the reasonable person standard upon which we base much of our legal system. Like in their words, or in their their world, sorry, the term reasonable person is literally meaningless. Um, They're just words, right? In, In fact, Derrida argued that the whole legal system was a kind of fabricated supernatural fantasy built on the mystical worship of authority. Go Derrida! All right, how are we going? Take a breath. We good? Okay, now we're going to deal with Michael Foucault, and this is where it really gets exciting. Enter Michael or Michel Foucault, and this is where we shift from postmodernism as an academic theory into something that is radically political. So Foucault's ideas have, come, have been come to uh, be known as critical theory. Next slide, which is uh, which have given you know which have given birth to the modern ra- radical social justice movement which has just become known colloquially as wokeism. And this is what I was taught at university in my undergraduate philosophy classes. And I remember thinking at the time in the 90s how much this was going to reshape the world, Foucault's ideas in particular, how much they were going to reshape our culture. And I can tell you that they absolutely have. You may have heard of critical race theory or queer theory or gender theory or post-colonial theory, a whole host of other critical academic theories, and all of them in one way or another trace themselves back or are influenced by the work of Michel Foucault. It's impossible to summarize Foucault, so we're just going to look at one of his ideas, just one. Here we go. The one of Foucault's main ideas was that all knowledge is a purely cultural construct, including science, and that we decide what is true and what is known or can be known only through complex categories and narratives and relationships created and enforced culturally in the interests of power and privilege. 
he called this power knowledge. Knowledge is power, and power is knowledge. In fact, what we even consider to be true or false is determined by power. And this in turn creates or permits certain kinds of knowledge, whether we realize it or not, and mostly we don't until it's pointed out to us. In fact, what is even understood by society as knowledge is really just an exercise of power enshrined by the ways that we talk about things. The words we use or are permitted to use legitimize certain knowledges and rule out others. Okay, so apply this to race or sexuality or gender or body shape or privilege or wealth or patriarchy or nationality or religion or family or education or government or anything else really, and you begin to see that if knowledge simply serves the interests of power, which is reinforced by the language we use, it is the crucial task of critical theory and social justice movements that it's given birth to, to dismantle the power knowledge dynamic and replace it with different knowledges and different language. We okay? Take a breath, I'll explain this. This is why contemporary social justice movements are so focused in particular on how we speak, on how we speak, on the words we use, how we categorize groups of people, what labels we use, covering everything from how we speak about gender or sexuality or use pronouns, what is permissible to say and what is not permissible to say. And the idea is that if you can change the way people speak, if you can change the way people speak, you can change the way people think and experience knowledge, and that will radically reshape the power dynamics at work in society. In that regard, what he's talking about is not social justice at all. He's talking about social re-engineering. So, okay, Helen Pluckrose writes this. Critical theory, it's emerged from Foucault, is chiefly concerned with revealing hidden biases and under-examined assumptions and is obsessed with power, language, knowledge, and the relationships between them. It interprets the world through a lens that detects power dynamics in every in interaction, utterance, and cultural artifact. It is a worldview that centers on social and cultural grievances and aims to make everything a zero-sum political struggle revolving around identity markers like race, sex, gender, sexuality, and many others. It aims to expose and disrupt the political power dynamics that work in these identity markers so that people will be convinced to initiate an ideological revolution. In the West, right, let's be clear, that primarily means dismantling the Christian tradition and the kind of democratic institutions that Christianity, almost exclusively in the world, has brought to the world. Namely, like small l, liberal secular democracies that do believe in objective material reality, that there is a real that we can know and interact with, in the scientific method, in the rule of law, and in certain um, freedoms that come with it, such as freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. The point is, friends, and this, I know this has been technical, but the point is, what we need to understand is that we are now living in a time where Foucault's vision of the world has taken root just about everywhere. Just about everywhere. It's already deeply embedded in our universities, across many disciplines, and increasingly in our governments, in the corporate world, in schools, and even in families. Okay, so for example, my guess is, my guess is, you have likely received 
diversity training of some kind in your school or workplace, which has been designed not just to help you be respectful of one another's differences, but rather to see the world through Foucault's eyes. That is, to recognize where the oppressive or marginalizing locations of systemic power are at work in society or in your workplace, or even in your own heart, especially if you belong to what is considered to be a privileged class, right? And you've been trained to therefore change the language that you use so that it's non-oppressive and more inclusive. Right, now here's the thing, here's the thing. And this is where I wanna be really generous because critical theory is not completely wrong, okay? Critical theory is not completely wrong. We do need to pay attention to how we speak, to the words we use, and to the assumptions that we make about other people. This is simply being respectful and extending love to other people, right? Particularly people that are different from us. And there are most definitely elements of systemic racism and sexism and classism and misogyny and various other discriminatory uses and abuses of power or injustice or exclusion that are going on in our culture, absolutely. And it has absolutely been a necessary and good thing for our society to address those issues, right? And as Christ followers, you know, I strongly believe that it is our calling and our duty to work hard against those evils in our society. What I'm saying to you here this morning, however, is that I do not believe that critical theory or social justice, particularly the social justice movement that it's given birth to, is actually enabling us to do that. In fact, I think it's, I think it's actually making things much, much worse. It's critical, but it's not constructive because it has no positive vision of the world except perpetual revolution. Now, I believe most of the real gains that we've seen in regards to social justice in the last 50 or 60 years have not taken place because of critical theory or its version of social justice, but via the very, yes, imperfect, but by the very systems and institutions of a liberal democratic society that critical theory rejects, a society based on Christian values and a Christian worldview. We've talked about them before. Democracy, the legal system, the free exchange of ideas, the scientific method, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, the idea that there is a real objective reality that can be known, even ideas as basic as human rights. All of that emerges from a Christian worldview. Take that away and what do you have? What do you have? You're just back to where we started at Nietzsche's will to power, which is that what is true or right will end up being decided by whoever wields the biggest gun, right? Whoever has the most cultural power will decide what is true or right. And that's where all of this leads. And I think that's why the social justice movement is growing increasingly moralistic and judgmental, and its proponents are becoming more absolutist and angry. And it's ex the problem is like, it's extremely difficult to argue against because it doesn't need to justify its claims since it's rejected Western modes of knowledge, right? So it doesn't play by those rules. So you can't argue against it. Exciting. I think the uh, only way to change this situation, to change the culture, is really for us to just keep doing what Christians have done since the very beginning. And that is for us to build the kind of churches and become the kind of disciples that in our lives together and in the world, we are living a different and a better story, right? We disempower cultural critical theory 
by showing the world there's actually a better way to be human and a better way to live in this world, a more hopeful and loving and, and a more just way, right? And I just think that is the way of Jesus. So we go back to the question that we asked at the beginning. How do we faithfully engage with all of this and with those around us? Are we aiming for tolerance or affirmation or something else? Now, Christopher Watkin, the author of a book called Biblical Critical Theory, um, which, by the way, last year won Christian Book of the Year by Christianity Today and Kurong as well and a whole bunch of others. And he's coming to speak here at one on Palm Sunday in the evening. Managed to get him to come. But he wrote a book called Biblical Critical Theory, which is addressing all of these kinds of issues that we're talking about today. And he asks, what is a Christian approach to culture in the last days? You know, should we find good in everything? Um, should we affirm everything or perhaps reject everything that doesn't reflect our biblical values? Are we aiming to be merely tolerant or is there a middle way, recognizing that our culture is good in some ways and not in others, right? And he writes this, a biblical attitude to cultural issues can neither be one of total affirmation or unlimited condemnation. Wherever Christians look at the world, we are sure to find evil and rebellion against God. By the same token, nothing in culture is so full of sin or falsehood and ugliness that it can fully erase the goodness of the original creation. The biblical view combines the best of both worlds. In Jesus' words, no one is good except God alone, means that the Christian position is open to a discerning engagement with any and all cultural phenomena, movements, people, and events, because none of them are utterly good and none of them are exhaustively evil. Okay, what he means is, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we can actually approach the world with an open heart, with an open and loving heart, but with a discerning and careful mind. Jesus said the same thing, be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. We can approach the world and people around us with an open and generous and loving heart, but with a discerning mind. Knowing that it will be messy, and we won't always get it right. Like who's gonna get it right in the midst of all of the challenges and the difficulties of navigating this cultural moment? Right, we're not always gonna get it right. At the same time, we don't need to win anything in the culture. This is not a war that we need to win because we know that Christ has already won the victory. So we engage the world from that basis. Jesus is the King, he's the Lord of creation. I don't need to win anything here, but I do need to respond to the world with love and generosity and hospitality and kindness. And as Peter says, show proper respect for everyone. This is not a zero sum game. It might be a zero sum game for critical theory and postmodernism, but it isn't for us because we know Jesus is already the King. Are you with me? Okay, so that means I think, friends, that we can take people as we find them and try our best to see the good in them and enthusiastically affirm that without feeling that we therefore must affirm everything about them. We need to show proper respect, real respect to honor and accord people with dignity, fully aware that they will be a very complex mix of good and bad, just as we are, right? So who are we to judge? Who are we to judge because we're all a weird, complex, and difficult mix of good and bad? The point is, if our hope is in a different kingdom, and we understand that as a royal priesthood, as Peter calls us, 
a royal priesthood, we are here to do exactly as Jesus did, which was what? To serve the world, not to be served. To serve the world, not to be served. That means in your workplace, in your families, wherever you are, you can live such good lives, or you're called to live such good lives, that even if the culture around you accuses you of doing wrong, says Peter, they will clearly see your good deeds, and we hope one day glorify God. And we can do this, friends. We can do this because we're not here to dominate or to win or to force people to accept our values because our kingdom is not of this world. Okay, so Tim Keller says uh, that if Christians think of themselves as aliens alongside, working for the good of society, then they'll not see themselves as here for what they can get out of society, whether it's money or reputation or career. Um, They'll see themselves as here to seek the shalom, the blessing, the flourishing of all those parts of culture with which they're engaged. So your task, wherever God has put you, as a servant of Jesus and as a royal priest, is to seek the flourishing, the shalom, the blessing of wherever God has placed you and the people that are around you. We're not here to be spectators or cynics or critics. We're here to be servants. We're here to be servants. So I think, actually, both attitudes, affirmation or tolerance, start with the wrong question. The question that I think that's asking is, how can I make the culture operate for me in a way that I'm comfortable with, right? If you're thinking in terms of affirmation or tolerance, what you're really saying is, how can I make the culture work for me in a way that I'm comfortable with? I think a better question is, um, how can I, which I think is what Scripture calls us to, is instead of how can I make culture fit with my beliefs, the better question to ask, I think, is what can I give to the culture and the people around me even if they're hostile to God and hostile to me, to help them flourish and be blessed and experience God's shalom and God's vision of human flourishing. Like that's what I'm called to do wherever God has put me. And that's the question I think I need to ask is not how can I make this work for me? It's how has God called me to serve and to give in this situation? Even if people accuse me of doing wrong, how can I be a blessing? How can I be a blessing? So I think the gospel of God's grace, lavishly poured out through Christ's death on the cross, and the new life of the resurrection is too humbling for us to want to seek power over others and too affirming for us to need to seek power over others. Instead, we ask, how can I, like Christ, pour myself out for the sake of of others. So if we reject tolerance or affirmation in favor of embracing the gospel, uh, its truth shapes our perspective on culture and of others. As Tim Keller says, we must live in the city to serve all the peoples in it, not just our own tribe. We must lose our cultural power to find our true power in Christ. Christianity will not be attractive enough to win influence except through sacrificial service to all people regardless of their beliefs. Now, friends, let's be honest. This is really difficult. And this is a huge sacrificial challenge. And there's only one thing that can prepare us for it, and that is an ever deeper and firmer grasp on the gospel of the Son of Man 
who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we are called to be royal priests in the pattern of Jesus, this is what it looks like. And I believe that is the best way to engage culture from a posture of humility and generosity, seeking the best for others, living our lives, offering our lives in loving service for the shalom of the city. That is the only way, I believe, will counter the destructive claims of things like critical theory or really any other system of thought that's going to come along by getting on with being the church in the way that Jesus intends for us. As 1 Peter 2 says, let's read it again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And therefore our task is to serve the world in the same way so that others may experience the same mercy that we have received from Jesus. Are you with me? I think that's the only way that we will change the world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, which calls us to have a very, very different understanding of what the world means and of what it means to be human, made in your image, than the narratives that we're hearing from the world around us. It's beautiful, it's glorious. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, your own special possession, called to declare your praises into this dark world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would empower us to do that effectively, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we together can become the kind of church that is able to address the uh, challenges around us with love and humility and generosity and service. I thank you that we don't need to win because you have won, so we're called to serve, and that is how we offer the world a better picture of what it means to be human and what it means to live a life of meaning and of truth. And I pray that that would shine through us, Lord Jesus, in everything we do. Give us what we need to be loving people to those around us. Help us, Lord Jesus. We can't do this on our own. We can't do this without your power. This is a sacrificial calling. But Lord, we believe that you're worth it and the people around us are worth it because you love them and you died for them and you want to offer them the same mercy that you've offered to us. So come Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray. Work in our church, work in our world, work in our city, work in our nation. Empower those who serve in government, business, Lord, in education, in healthcare, wherever they may be, Lord, I pray that you'd empower them to be your servants in those contexts. And through the influence of giving up our own need to win in order that you might be glorified, I pray that others will see our good deeds and the love of Christ in us. And even if they may think we're weird or strange, they may see you in us, Lord Jesus and they may come to know you and be transformed. In Jesus' name.
we pray. Amen. Amen.